last night I mentioned um, the research work done by Richie Davidson and Paula Kaliman and others. And we spoke about these four uh, fundamental composites of transformation. Um, You remember what they were? Awareness. Some are taking notes. uh. (laughs) No need to take notes, but okay, good to be on the ball. Awareness, the fact that we can train attention, mind, etc. Insight, both kind of the the kind of understanding both one's own functioning and the way reality is. Connection, capacity to kind of sense our place in our intimacy with our depth of relationship with ourselves, with others, with the world around us, which we explored last night. And then the fourth is, um, well, the way it's described in Ritchie's work is purpose. But I think that's a bit of an American obsession. I gave a talk on a retreat in and I had taught in New York a few years ago. And the title of the retreat, the title of the talk was "Your Life Has No Purpose." <laughs> Partly in uh, in uh, as a, as a um, com- to compensate a little for what seems to me sometimes the obsession with my purpose. What's my purpose? Right. So we look around that subject, but I'll, I'll probably try to avoid using the word purpose. Maybe rather meaning meaningfulness. What's being pointed to is some sense in which one feels and knows one's life to be embedded in a sense of meaning. One, a sense of having a kind of clear direction of travel. Right? It doesn't mean one has any clear sense of what the destination is or could be or should be, but one has a sense of being aligned with one's values, embedded in a sense of goodness and that there's, there's kind of a, a coherence between one's thought life, one's physical life, one's emotional life, one's working life, one's expressive life, one's affectionate life. You know. that these, the different ways in which we engage with life feel like they're kind of, they're grounded in some deep cohesion or coherence and that depth of cohesion or coherence we might call meaning or meaningfulness. Uh, Now traditionally meaning has been provided for us by the religions. They tell us what the meaning of one's life is. They give a sense of moral meaning or moral purpose So most of the religions tell us our purpose here is to in some way get closer to God. Some of them seem to tell us we should spend much of our lives kind of apologizing to God or groveling before God or trying to make good in the eyes of God. And if we manage to do that well enough, then after we die, depending on the religion, either you'll get a good destination or a bad destination or you'll get to come around and do it all again. And, you know, that's one of the functions that religious has served is to give 
meaning and so we have a sense of received meaning and a lot of the kind of the ways human beings have organized themselves to live together has been in relationship to the meaning that's been given by the religion th usually through the intermediary of uh, of the religious institutions that traditionally have wielded a lot of power and influence over people's everyday lives. And then traditionally, then in the face of that, the spiritual journey, we might say, or spiritual practice has been one of taking those extern that external or applied or received meaning and making it one's own. And it may be that people have started off with the assumption that the religious truths or meaning that they've received are the way things are. And then there's a question of finding out from the inside whether that's true or not. Mm -hmm. Finding out which bits of the religious meaning given to life are kind of, you know, actually can be activated and known and, and expressed in the soul or in the heart. And which bits are, you know, for the convenience of the clergy, basically. Or which bits are kind of, you know, blind belief. Or which bits are there actually for the kind of, you know, to keep people, um, you know, in that rather Marxian way. Which bits are acting as the opium of the masses. So that's kind of a traditional journey of meaning, we might say, from the way meaning has been given to us outwardly, to the way we've, uh, we find our way to kind of make that our own in a, in a real way. But, probably, most of us, we've grown up in a kind of, most of us, many of us, in a sort of post-religious um, world, right? Of course, it'll differ from case to case, and maybe some of you grow up in, a, actually, in a very religious world, which you may have since rejected, or you grew up in a religious world which you have maybe made your own in some way. And yet, even if that's true, within the wider culture, we sort of live in a post-religious world. Religion isn't really the, the provider of meaning anymore, culturally, which leads one to wonder who is or what is the provider of meaning. Any ideas? We're a bit bereft of meaning. No. And some of the, the kind of, you know, the effects of that you know, loss of meaning, you know, and certainly some of the kind of mental health uh, crises stem to some extent from you know, a loss of meaning. It's, it's, uh, we don't have external parameters for meaning. We have most of the external parameters are kind of the encouragements of our cultural currents, which are currents of consumption, you know, uh, currents of political and social drama, currents of the f kind of fear and division and scapegoating that drive some of those dramas. And then cultures of entertainment. You know. 
If you take those cultural currents away, right, all the encouragement there is in the culture and all the means that there are in the culture, the many of means by which to consume, many of means by which to get into drama, many means by which to entertain or distract ourselves, what, what's left? What's left on the TV apart from that stuff? What's left in the newspapers apart from that stuff? What's left in the discourse with friends and colleagues apart from that stuff? It's one of the reasons that Sangha, spiritual community, seeking out, what the Buddha calls seeking out the company of the wise, one of the reasons why that's important, finding places where we can be nourished by meaningfulness. By depth, by something that, that looks to and honours and grounds us in something deeper than the superficial cultural currents. And of course our traditional religious meaning making has to some extent been replaced by scientific meaning making. Science is sort of the religion of our day. Right? It doesn't present itself as a religion. It calls everything else religion. It says, no, no, we're not religion. We're the truth. But that's actually what every other religion does as well. Right? It says all the others are religions, but not us. We're the, we're the truth. And science has all the other trappings of religion. It gives us an origin story, like all the other religions do. And it is just a story. It's a largely discredited story. Right? Any, any astrophysicist basically agrees that the Big Bang is a preposterous idea. Right now. But the only re- thing, reason it sustains as an origin story is because no one can come up with anything better. For now, All they find once they explode the idea of the Big Bang is mystery. And I think mystery maybe is the best origin story, actually. And it has an attempt to explain you know, what we're doing here and how things work, like other religions do. But science doesn't attempt the ki- to provide meaningfulness in the same way. You know, scientific materialism, which is really the religion of our day, kind of reduces the mystery or attempts to reduce the grandeur and the mysteriousness, and the, the just the all-pervasive aliveness and infinity of life to the known, the familiar, no. the, the, the building blocks of life, etc., etc. kind of attempts to produce a mechanistic sense of how things work. You know, it, tends to, it attempts to get, be, get beyond meaningfulness to um, almost mechanicfulness could possibly exist as a word and again even though that attempt to kind of mechanize our understanding of life has been largely exploded by quantum understanding and the physics that actually starts to point back to something more mystical or mysterious so I just notice yourself where do you find yourself What, what provides meaning in life. It may be that one or other kind of religious uh, narrative provides some meaning. Or it may be that uh, 
science, the, the religion of our day, is your orientation for understanding life and the universe and planets and human life, etc., etc. Or it may be that you kind of realize, oh, I don't have much orientation to meaning. I'm so busy going along just trying to manage the stuff of life and the thises and thats and trying to manage my financial life and my working life and my relationship life and now I'm trying to manage my inner life as well. That's more than enough. And yet, there's something very integral to a human life in terms of seeking meaning longing for meaning and we might as a a synonym say longing for meaning kind of longing for wholeness there's a sense we have that's just built in to inhabiting a human body with the human psyche that we feel ourselves to be somehow separate from the whole fabric of existence there's life life everywhere and then there's me in the middle of it all And our senses seem to reinforce that separateness. Look, I'm seeing, everything's out there, and the seeing's in here. I'm hearing what's out there, and the hearing's in here. And that too, and maybe you've had tastes of that this week, or maybe that's actually quite an established station in your life, where that sense of separation has been seen through in many ways, put down in many ways, relaxed. And so actually there's a sense of permeability between what we call inner and what we call outer. There's a sense of what we call the world and what we call the self kind of you know, um, existing in a sort of intimacy, an interpenetration, in a kind of harmony, in a, pl- in a way that we sort of can give up bothering about the sort of existential boundaries that we make and then reinforce between inner and outer. And if that's the case, in those moments where that relaxation or thinning of the boundary happens, or as that becomes more of a station in our life, very important, very helpful to to really drink that in, to trust that, to sense the inherent intimacy that there is between what we call my life and all of life. But, as I say, the, the, the usual human condition is one of feeling this sense of separation and then having a kind of longing that may or may not be acknowledged In most people, it's a largely unconscious longing to somehow try to bridge that gap. To get to a place which for some might appear as a place of understanding, or for some might appear as a place of peace, or as a place of uh, fullness. Where, oh, where I can rest. Where things are okay where things are clear. That longing for completion or for wholeness or for non-separation 
or for meaning, for knowing, for understanding. It has all these different facets, actually, according to our kind of personality style. But that attempt to get from some condition of disconnect or unknowing to some condition of completion, wholeness, rest, peace, understanding, etc., is you know, a very, very fundamental driver of being human. And so we might look a little at some of the some of the ways we try to bridge that gap. And there are sort of three primary ways I would say. The first is we try to kind of consume life to bridge that gap. Right. Sometimes in a very literal way, right, with food. You know, sometimes you're eating and you know it's not really because you're hungry. Maybe you had that expression right here this week. The first baked potato was because you were hungry. The second baked potato was serving an entirely different purpose. And there's a kind of the attempt to somehow literally take what seems to be outside. And of course, this isn't so much a conscious drive, but and to bring it inside. And a kind of instinctual attempt to, to close the gap between self and life in that way. And food's the obvious way we try to consume, but actually there's the whole acquisitive movement of life. Trying to get some sense of ease or security or contentment through getting, having, doing, consuming. And if you pay attention to the momentary feeling of fulfillment, when you want something, and then you get something, and then, oh, you're satisfied. You're satisfied. Very, very briefly <laughs> satisfied. <laughs> but if you pay attention to that satisfied feeling, it's not got that much to do with the object. Right? It, what it's got to do with is... You're satisfied by the ending of the agitation. Right? The ending of the, uh, the trying to cross that gap, trying to consume that thing. And then I get it and... Oh. It's a bit like when the bell rings in meditation. You, know, you think, oh, if only the bell would ring, if only the bell would ring. You know, trying to cross that gap from where you are to the mysterious realm where the bell is. Right? And the... F- Legs are burning, and if only the bell would ring, then I'd have peace and wholeness and completion. And and then, hallelujah, the bell rings. And, and sometimes the relief is there before you've even moved your legs. <laughs> right? Because some, you're not... You're not trying to get anywhere anymore. You're not trying to get to the bell anymore. And it's really, really interesting that. We think we want the bell to ring so that, ah, oh, so I can get the relief. But then the bell rings and no need to struggle anymore. Oh. I noticed that myself quite early on in my practice. And then I just made a practice of any time I got into a bit of struggle, I just, imagine, I just let the bell ring internally. <laughs> 
And we might see for ourselves and we might study for ourselves, you know, whether it's in meditation, like the example I just gave with the bell, or whether it's in the wider field of our lives, we might uh, study in ourselves that tendency to kind of engage in the things that we pursue. And there may be very good reason to pursue the things we do. There's good reason to earn a living. There's good reason to um, you know, develop uh, good relationships. There's good reason to take care of ourselves and our families and uh, others around us, etc. There's good reason to eat well. And we might study that when we're engaging in that pursuit for good reason and when we overstep and we, be, and we kind of get seduced by a kind of attempt to consume or acquire or get hold of somehow life as if it's going to make me feel okay. And the tricky thing about that, as I say, is because it does make you feel okay. Very briefly. And then, oh, there's something else to want. And then, oh, around we go again. And another kind of main current of our attempts to kind of get some sense of wholeness or peace is through somehow trying to withdraw from the messiness, the complexity, the difficulty of stuff, life. Sometimes it's human relationships. Oh, they just complicated. Or money. Oh, you're doing so complicated. Or uh, situations where our kind of unresolved material gets stimulated in some way. Oh, and we want to run away. Again, maybe there's been moments this week. I'm sure there's been moments this week when you wanted to run away. It's a great testament to your sincerity and steadiness that you're still here. And I don't take that for granted. Sometimes end of meditation I open my eyes. Oh, they're still here. (laughs) And that movement somehow to kind of to Imagine, and again the driver of this is largely unconscious, there may be good reason, of course, there may be good reason in all kinds of circumstances to turn away, to leave certain situations, situations that feel unhealthy or untrustworthy or unsafe. Plenty of reasons to move away from things. And the opportunity to study when that's actually coming from clarity and wisdom and when there's some attempt to kind of to withdraw to hide, to go unconscious in some way, as if I'll feel, I'll get to feel that sense of completeness or okayness in some sort of isolation, in some sort of protective isolation, some sort of withdrawal from that which is complicated or challenging uh, in some way, or exposing.
Does some of this sound familiar? And then the third current, what, what might the third current be? The third current is the, the attempt to get meaning or wholeness through figuring stuff out. You know, that's we culturally we're rampant with overthinking. You know. And it's interesting in the kind of most if one looks to the traditional cultures through the vast majority of human history, or actually maybe not I'm not sure the vast majority, I think probably if you go back a very a long way, there was a lot of reverence for the kind of warrior archetype. But through a lot of, the, certainly through the classical, all through the classical period, which is the bit of history that's best documented. And if you look at the Axial Age, a couple of thousand, two and a half thousand years ago, there's this great flourishing of civilization all around the world in different places, in Greeks, Romans, Babylonians, uh, Indians. And there was a kind of a lot of reverence for a couple of thousand years for wisdom, and what do I mean? You call saintliness, or holiness, kind of purity, uh, uh, virtue. Now those were the values that were were kind of revered and looked up to, and were seen as being the kind of the best guiding forces for life. Wisdom and virtue. And of course, those the the kind of the, the the reverence for wisdom and virtue went hand in hand with the kind of the religious meaning making that was going on, and then that started to change right around the time of the Renaissance, and then we started to we lost the interest a bit in wisdom and virtue, and instead started to revere cleverness. Right. And the heroes of the day became the public intellectuals. And we, the inheritors of that current. Actually, things have degraded a bit since then. Now we seem to, even the intellectuals don't get much currency now. It seems just celebrity is the kind of, <laughs> the kind of revered, uh, the revered, what, pillars of our, Late capitalist, morally decaying, <laughs> um, you know, life as we know it, you know. with its you know its beauty and its uh, the things that are growing and developing in all kinds of ways, and as is the way of things. While some things are growing and developing, some things are collapsing and dying. And. The sense we so we inherit this kind of strong intellectual position, strong intellectual tradition, of the attempt to figure things out. What does this mean? What does this mean? And that goes along with the shift from you know traditional religion to science as well. The attempt to figure out meaning. And again, we might see for ourselves, and again, nothing wrong with figuring things out. Really, really, really helpful capacity right? to reflect, to consider, to understand, right? as well as you know, to calculate, etc. 
But there's only so far that thought can go. And thought can't go very far, actually, into the realms of meaningfulness. And when thought attempts to go too far, it gets very complicated. You know, I live in France. France is the master country of overcomplicated thought. <laughs> right? From poor old Descartes onwards, and the whole Cartesian split, to the you know Derrida and Foucault and these sort of postmodernist, post-structuralist, deconstructist overthinkers. Great thinkers, slash overthinkers. <laughs> and then we have to see for ourselves to, to what extent do we get caught in trying to figure things out in a way that you know, exceeds thought's remit, actually. And again, maybe you've had the opportunity to taste that this week, trying to figure out one's life. Oh my God. Right. Or trying to figure out meditation. Right. Equally hopeless. <laughs> right. If you could figure out meditation, you wouldn't need to practice it. You just figure it out. Oh yeah, oh yeah, okay. You know, meditations are a powerful tool actually for both exposing the limitations of thought after a while, thought is just going round in the same old loops again. Conjectural loops. Hypothetical loops. Abstract loops. And we can get very fascinated by the world of thought. But after a while, oh God, it's just same old, same old. Right? Meditation is a good tool both for exposing the limitations of thought and, importantly, also, because if that's all it did, it would drive us mad. Right? If we, all we could do with meditation was see that thought is like really limited. But it's also a powerful tool for enabling us to go beyond thought, to use other capacities of consciousness. There's so much more we can do with a mind than just think. And again, nothing wrong with thinking. But there is something wrong, or at least limited or very partial, if that's the only mental capacity we develop. And most of us, that's pretty much the only way we know how to use our minds. Thinking about stuff. And so, the invitation and meditation to actually, what? We could say go beyond thought, or we could say drop beneath thought. Or we might also describe it as just staying very patiently and gently attentive to thought. Until, and so that we start to notice the space between thoughts space around thoughts, a space in which thoughts are coming and going.
the very fact that we can be aware of thought. That shows us there's more going on than just thinking. If you can notice a thought, that which notices the thought isn't itself bound by the thought. And and that's often the first real kind of shattering insight of meditation. Oh, I'm not my thoughts. Oh, thoughts are appearing in consciousness. They're not the directors of consciousness, not the owners of consciousness. They don't have the authority to describe consciousness. And so we start to give attention to this realm within which the analysis and the thinking and the figuring out is coming and going. So, these are some of the attempts we make, some of the ways we try, trying to kind of pursue or consume a meaning or wholeness, trying to withdraw from difficulty so as to attain some sort of private or protected sense of wholeness or meaning, or this attempt to kind of um, analyze, uh, describe, figure out, and 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 get us get a sense of have a cognitive framework for meaning or wholeness, and you know, we can explore these as they're happening. And while we're exploring them, meanwhile, here we are. Here we are looking for meaning. You know, looking for meaning. Looking for meaning. And meanwhile, life is expressing perfectly, constantly, imminently its, not so much its meaning, but maybe its meaningfulness. So what's my, whoever the me is, what's my purpose? This. 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 To have a sensitive organism, a a body, a mind, a a heart, to have cognitive capacity, feeling capacity, motor capacity, to have language, to have this inherent brightness of mind that's illuminating our experience constantly. This is our life underpinned by meaningfulness, shot through with meaningfulness. Maybe you are the proof of and the and simultaneously the expression of life's meaningfulness. 
And that's a nice idea, right? But it won't, su- it won't sustain as a nice idea. Oh, and, yet, and yet we have this practice that invites us to test the reality of that. How do we test the reality of it by you know, sensing into it? Giving ourselves to it. Feeling for this imminence, this naturalness, this kind of effulgence of life that's constantly uh, expressing itself in us. So that rather than looking for the, a mean, the meaning of life, we can rather sense into the, a meaningful life. The ground of landing in a sense of a clear direction, a confidence in what one's doing, an alignment between heart and mind, values and action, really has its ground here. It has its ground in us sensing the essential magnificence of life, the essential. Uh, intelligence of life. Life is expressing its, its brilliance by growing trees and by breathing human bodies and by producing all of this and all of this and all of this. Planets and stars and photosynthesis and everything. What more proof do you need than an entire universe displaying itself constantly. Yes, but, um, you know, yes, but what? So most essentially, if we want to know and trust and harness the meaningfulness of life, best is don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Everything's already here. Land in that. Feel for that. Trust that. And let that do the moving, the speaking, the acting. And the sense, even though one ordinarily might say, I'm going here and I'm doing that, the sense within that is of resting. Allowing, being carried by, supported by, held by the life which is moving through us, expressing its brilliance, expressing its naturalness, expressing its liveliness, expressing its, its rhythmicness, so that we live fully and then we die freely. And I'm aware that might not be quite enough instruction. Do nothing, go nowhere, let life do it all. That's the best instruction. But it might not be quite, it might need a little filling out. (laughs) So there's a few things that might be helpful to actually train that capacity. One is, you know, the practice of actually aligning your 
you know, the things you most deeply care about and the things you actually actively support moment by moment. You know. And again, meditation is actually a good example of that. You say, oh, I love meditation. I care about meditation. I go around telling other people, meditation's really good. You should do meditation. I'm into meditation in all kinds of ways except for actually meditating. <laughs> you know? That's a kind of, you know, it's a certain kind of tragedy. I have no agenda that everybody should meditate or that even that you should meditate. Right? But if you love meditation, for God's sake, meditate. Right. If you have that sense of knowing that, the, so that there's something beautiful and important and powerful, if you know that there's a way in which that can support you in kind of grounding in the mystery and the majesty and the miraculousness of life, then how tragic to be a theoretical meditator. Somebody who loves meditation and theory but doesn't actually do it very much. And if that's the case, and you can again, you can see for yourself, if that's that case that, oh, in theory I love meditation, but I never quite make it to my cushion, right? one feels, you know, it re you reinforce the sense of being apart from. There are my values and what I care about, and here are my actions. I love meditation, but I spend the morning in bed on my phone. Then that gap. And it's that gap that you create between the intention and the action that you know, reinforces that gap that we've been speaking about, that we kind of long to cross. And conversely, you know, if you feel like, oh, this is important, and then you just get your ass out of bed in the morning and you sit, and then the next morning you do it again, and then the next morning you do it again, after a week or so, you'll start to feel that kind of you know, a sort of a certain dignity of values, intentions, actions lined up. And the same with the various other things of life. You know, well, some when we see whatever particular pattern, some of us have a pattern maybe to procrastinate. Oh yes, that thing. I know I want to do it. I know it would be good to do it, but I don't do it. I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. And you, again, you reinforce a gap and then you have to live the discomfort and the dis-ease of knowing that you're not the intention and the action are not together. And conversely, then there's a sense of, oh, I, there's no, I know there's something that would be good to do. Do it! And then the next time that thing arrives, do it. And then taste the alignment, that sense of, integrity with oneself. And becoming, you become more and more trustworthy to yourself. You trust yourself to meditate in the morning. You trust yourself to do what needs to be done. Right? And that trustworthiness invites a kind of intimacy. Invites that kind of rest. Invites that, that sort of integrity with oneself. Sometimes we want, to, we want to look for meaning or purpose in a grand way. We want to know, what was I put on the earth for? Life doesn't work like that. 
the universe isn't busy trying to, isn't fixating on what you, your great purpose is. Right? We want to look for purpose in some kind of idealism. No. Much more helpful to bring it home. Right? What am I doing right now? What's important in this moment? What's worthy of care and attention and responsiveness? And again, in that way, we come close, we find the meaningfulness in what we're doing. Yesterday we spoke about the way, you know, you can sweep a path and the sweeping can be just absent-minded or it could be mindful in terms of being full of, a, you know, giving attention or it could be imbued with kindness. And similarly, and, and the, the, and the simple action that one imbues right, with contactfulness, with intimacy, it becomes meaningful by itself. In the monastery I stayed at in Thailand, all through the summer period, July to September, was the, you know, Actually, it's most of the year like that. And tropical countries don't follow the same sort of season. So leaves fall all the time. Right? But somehow it seemed to be a particularly leaf-falling le- leaf time of year when I was there because my job was sweeping paths. Right? So every morning I sweep the path and I would try to take some pride in my work, sweep the path. But never mind the next day. By the time I'd even got to the end of the path I was sleeping, the first part of the path... So I run back and do it again, do it again. And I was kind of locating meaning in having a clear path. If I can get to clear path, then meaning. But no chance, no chance of a clear path. So if you put your meaning in the destination, when the path is clean, when the washing up's done, when I've got to the end of my bloody to-do list, Right? That's a place we often put meaning. When I've done that, then I'll rest. Why wait to the end of your to-do list to rest? Rest now in the to-do list. Rest in the sweeping. Maybe there's meaningfulness and beauty and depth in the sweeping. In the leaf. In the smells. In the feet on the ground. In the aliveness in the moment. when the path gets clear, how clear the path is, the fact that it gets instantly covered again, that's just called life. That participates in the meaningfulness and the depth. So don't look far away. Life's purpose is being expressed. And every phenomena is the proof and the expression of that. And our closeness to that, our meaningfulness in that, our expression of that, and our deep delight and at-homeness in that is not far. Closer than the breath. Closer than the thought. Closer than sight. Closer than hearing. Closer than understanding. 
here. In the innate, inherent luminosity of being here. So may we give up our search for meaning and in doing so fall into a depth of meaning that's already our home. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.